I'm your host, Dana Giordano, and this is the More Than Running podcast. In this fifth season of More Than Running, I'm branching out to tell more stories that are untraditional from the track and trails and now beyond. More Than Running is hosted on the Sidious Mag podcast network, and every week I will be bringing you new conversations about the most inspiring and insightful women I know and want to know. Whether they're doing amazing things on the track or working tirelessly to promote the sport as industry leaders and entrepreneurs, hear how they found success. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave me a review. Every message and subscriber helps me reach more people who are connected by this amazing sport. With that, welcome to the show. This episode of More Than Running is brought to you by Solomon. I've been partnering with Solomon for the first few episodes of this season because I am running my first trail half marathon, the women's only trail half marathon right here in my backyard in San Francisco, right over the bridge in Marin. And if you don't know a lot about Solomon, they were born in the French Alps in 1947, and they have an incredible lineup of road and trail running footwear and hydration gear. It's my first time ever running in trail shoes, and... I can't believe it's taken me this long because they're really perfect for any runner on any train, no matter the challenge. And they're creating all this with a why not spirit. From trail running to snowboarding, Solomon's goal is to make gear that transforms sport experiences because tomorrow is yours. Welcome back to another episode of More Than Running. And we are branching out this week with someone who is definitely more than running because while she does run a fair amount for her training, her primary sport is Nordic skiing. Jessie Diggins, multi-time Olympian, Olympic medalist, is on the podcast today, and she's going to share with us everything about how she uses running to support her Nordic skiing, her crazy year from the Olympics to getting married, training Vermont, training Australia and beyond, and just being an overall wonderful person who's advocating for the earth and for women to feel themselves properly. So Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really pumped to be on here. So what brings us together is that, you know, we are both going to be at a Solomon event doing a trail half marathon this upcoming weekend. By the time you guys hear this episode, it'll already have happened. So hopefully it went well. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about kind of the cadence of a year of training for Nordic skiing, because I think my audience would find that really interesting. I think we all know, you know, running has in college, cross country in the fall, and then we have indoor track and spring track. But what do the seasons actually look like for um, your side of things? Yeah, um, we... <laughs> We don't really have indoor, <laughs> indoor right? Sports. Right. <laughs> We're a little different that way, but so for me, um, the year starts uh, with training in May. So April's our month off. That's when it's really like take whatever amount of time you need to heal your body, heal your brain, so you don't burn out or get injured. Um, and then starting at the start of May, uh, we start training again. And so for us, training is a really big mix of running. Uh, primarily on trail and also this is always surprising to people who run more but we run we run so slow like we run very very slow like you can and should be able to have a conversation and we don't log our miles so when someone says like oh what's your weekly mileage I'm like I have no clue 
I wow. have no idea because we actually just log hours. So it's oh like gosh. you want to run for two hours at your low, low intensity pace. And that's, and then you might have, um, different prescribed intervals where it's like, all right, now you're doing sets of 10 minutes at this pace or five minutes at race pace. Um, but most of our training is, you know, you should be able to hold a conversation. And if you're totally out of breath, you've got to back it down. Um, and it's for a long time too. So we usually train twice a day, six days a week. Um, wow. and like, for example, this morning I went on a three hour classic roller ski, um, and then this afternoon, I'm going to spin bike for 30 minutes for a warm-up and then do an hour of lifting in the gym. So a typical training schedule is a lot of running, a lot of roller skiing. And for people who haven't seen those before, um, sorry if you have, bear with me. No, no. <laughs> Consider us beginners. Consider us, this is the basics here. We have sneakers and spikes and flats and all the other equipment, Not, not this, not this podcast. Okay, so I have so many questions to ask you later about spikes and flats. I don't know the difference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, roller skis are about um, a foot and a half to two feet long. There's wheels in the front and the back. Kind of picture like really long inline skates, um, but there's no brakes, which makes downhills very exciting. Um, Sounds so most- <laughs> scary and like falls are inevitable. I've, I've lost a fair amount of skin to the roads. Um, however, you, you sort of get used to it. You can kind of do this sort of power snow plow to slow down and you really ski on roads and loops where you know there isn't going to be a steep downhill into a stop sign. Or if there is, you just pop them off and walk down the hill mm-hmm. <laughs> for safety. But we also have poles. And so our ski poles, um, you change it from a, a snow basket to this carbide tip that sticks into the asphalt. So you can roller ski just down the road. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's it's very full body that way. And it pretty closely mimics the motions of cross-country skiing. Um, it's not exactly the same feel as being on snow you're obviously not dealing with wax. You have ratchets on the wheels so that you can kick back and propel yourself forward, but it's pretty close. So we do a lot of roller skiing, running. We weight lift twice a week. Um, We might do some gravel biking and some swimming for workouts. So we're really fortunate Mm. in that, you know, growing up, I did so many different sports and I feel like I still get to do all these different sports. That's amazing. Which is really fun and also helps with injury prevention, right? Um, Because, you know, you start getting a little fatigued in the running department and you switch to skiing and then you get tired there and you switch to biking and you kind of reset yourself. Um, And then our season starts in November So I raced the World Cup circuit. So we head over to Europe and pretty much all of our races are in Scandinavia and Central Europe. And so we race usually like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or just Saturday, Sunday. We travel Monday to the next country and we do it all over again. And we do that November through the end of March. And it's a pretty intense race schedule. So I really don't have very many breaks. And the breaks that we have are too short to really justify the travel and jet lag involved with coming back to the States. So once I head over um, for the start of the season, November 16th, we start in Ruka, Finland, reindeer farming country. Um, And I'm I'm over there until March. (laughs) I have 
so many questions for you. But I'm gonna I'm gonna start with I'm gonna start with the training and I thought you were gonna start the reindeer part, but no. No, we're gonna we're gonna get there because I wanna, you know, <laughs> racing will transition to some other things, but I wanna start with the training and speak a little bit about the friendships you make on the team because three hours of roller skiing a day, time in the gym, you are on a team. So how your team is in Stratton, Vermont. And it looks like you guys have a lot of fun and you're spending a lot of time together. So on the track and field side of things, there are teams, um, but sometimes there's like people are going for the same events. It's highly competitive, but I think it's because there's a higher volume of people still competing post-collegiately. So yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, team dynamics and your friendships on the team because it seems like you have a lot of time to really get to know each other on three-hour runs and Roller skis. Oh, yeah. We've decided that on these long runs, conversations follow a similar format. First, it's like the gossipy stuff. You know, what's going on? How was your weekend? What are you up to? What are you excited about? And then we get hungry and we talk about what we're going to make for lunch. And then we talk about epic training fails and all the crazy <laughs> things. And then it gets to silence by the end. So there's mm. like predictable format. Um, but yeah, it, I'm so fortunate to be on such an amazing team. So my team here is SMST2. We're based out of Stratton, Vermont. And this is my club team. I'm also on the national team, um, but we Mm -hmm. have fewer camps because it's a big country and we're spread out across it. But um, we train together pretty much every day and it's awesome. And I think one of the things that we really focus on is spending time putting in Um, the work to create really meaningful relationships um, Mm -hmm. and take care of one another and hang out outside of training as well. We do a lot of grill outs, cookouts. We watched the Bachelorette finale the other night and had fantasy league and the whole thing. That guy is from my high school that just won. Very controversial, but Eric, he went to my high school. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. We have so much to catch up on. uh, Yeah. So we, we spend a lot of time just having fun in a, in a very um, non-training, non-racing atmosphere as well. But also, I think one of the things that makes it easier to be not as competitive with each other when we're training, because we do mm-hmm. race against each other, right? Like in cross-country skiing, one of the things that's really interesting is we kind of usually race everything. So at the last okay. Olympics, I raced all six events, everything from the sprint to a 30K, which is super different than the track world. Like the people who do the 800 meter don't do the marathon. Yeah, um, it's like if you were swim. we always compare it to swimming. It's like if you're doing breaststroke and freestyle, it'd be like if you were running and you were running backwards. Like they're just, that's not equivalent. So that's kind of how I consider the different uh, disciplines for you guys too. Exactly. Like they're super different, different techniques, different race distances, but we are um, in the U S it's a smaller sport. And so you kind of need to be jack of all trades and, and mm. really do it all. Otherwise you're limiting the amount of races that you can do. Um, and the amount of chances you have to score points for your country on the world cup. So we basically, everyone does everything. Um, some people trend more towards sprinting or distance, but everyone trains pretty similarly. Um, because our sprint races are pretty long. Like two and a half minutes isn't really a pure sprint. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's not like sprinting mm-hmm. in the sense of like actually going as fast as you can for 10 seconds. So, um, so anyway, we do a lot of training together. And one of the things that really helps us is we just focus on seeing it as group success. So like when I train with my teammates, I want them to be as fast as possible because 
A, I care about them and I've gotten to know them outside of sport and they're really good friends. But B, it also reflects well on me. You know, like it helps if the people that I train with are at their A game because then it comes back and they can push me as well. And when we race in the club relay, I want us all to be absolutely on our A game. And so you really prioritize, like, it's in everyone's best interest for the people that I live and train with to be absolutely as good as they can be. I want them to reach their full potential. Um, and it's sort of, uh, it's not like a, what's the word, zero-sum game. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's mm-hmm. less of that and more of like, no, everyone can reach their full potential. You don't know what that potential may lead to, but it's really about helping each other get there. Um, And it's kind of fun because we all have such different strengths. So some people are really good at speed work. Some people are really good at skate or classic, um, the two techniques within the sport. Some people are really good at distance and intervals. Like it's kind of cool because on any given day, someone might be able to, you know, take a turn at the Mm -hmm. front pulling the group. And on a different day, if you're feeling tired, you're like, you know, I've put in my time. It's okay if I don't lead everything right now. And mm-hmm. um, there's there's quite a bit of yin and yang, which I think is really nice. And Nordic skiing is a, seems a little bit more co-ed than some other sports as well. I, do you do a lot of your, where does the separation come in training of training with the men? Because I've seen some, you know, running on the trails, I've run into some Nordic skiing groups um, when I've trained in Park City and everyone is together, at least at the start. Um, is it kind of a, you know, co-ed nature? Yeah, it really is, which I found to be awesome because we have so much to learn from each other, um, whether it's technique, the mentality, um, or pacing. Like sometimes I'll get in behind the high school senior boys for intervals, and that's awesome. It's super that's helpful. That's amazing. Um, it's great. I love it. I don't know if they love it, but I think it's great. So um, I think we, we really use each other a lot, and we also um, – have really great relationships as a team. So when I talk about like hanging out, getting to know my teammates, I don't just mean the girls. I mean everyone mm-hmm. on the team. Um, it's It's been really awesome. So sometimes we do split into different groups. Maybe the guys are going a slightly faster pace. Um, the whole testosterone thing, you know. But Brutal. <laughs> brutal. Brutal. It's hard. But um, usually we do a lot of our training together because when you are going at that lower intensity – level that I was talking about that we usually train at, um, there's not that much of a difference. And so usually we just train as one big group. I really love that. And I think that's something I wish running had a little bit more of. We used to do some of our easy days as a group, but sometimes I'd be like, guys, this isn't easy for me. Like we got to slow down. But I think that's the nature of running is that, especially on the road is that the trails kind of control your pace to to a certain extent. Um, to flip gears back to the reindeer farm, though, when you're thinking about your racing season and being away for such a long period of time, how do you kind of prepare yourself mentally for, you know, being away from home for so long and, you know, racing so competitively every single weekend? What comes in the fall mental preparation for, you know, the next season? Oh, a lot of things. Um, I guess the first would be that I, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? And so you're definitely excited, but you kind of have to measure out, like, 
and think ahead, like, how am I going to make it through, you know, not being home with my family and loved ones for Christmas? That's always a really challenging mm. time. I think, especially times like the holidays where you have traditions, like, oh, you know, normally we'd be doing this at home yeah. with my family. Like, um, Thanksgiving on the road's always kind of hard. Um, you know, like, I haven't been in the U.S. for Thanksgiving in, like, 12 years. Um, so it's it's been a while. But you start to make new traditions with your teammates and you think about like, all right, what can we do? That is super fun. Like this year I'm going to be spending Christmas on the road with two of my teammates. Um, and we got a rental house. We're like, all right, we got Christmas decorations. We're going to get a tree. Like we're going to go sledding. All these things that we're going to do. Um, we're going to bake cookies together. Like you can kind of make new traditions wherever you are and, and really looking for the upside and the positive. But the other thing is knowing that, you know, we've spent all this time, all spring, summer, and fall, getting to know each other, building these relationships so that when it is a tough day, if I am feeling homesick, I have trust in my teammates that I can say, you know what, I really need a hug or I need to go for a walk or can we play cards or, you know, something to kind of lift the mood. And um, I think it's nice that we do have that trust in each other where, you know, you can turn to your teammates when you need help. So that helps a lot. But the other thing is, it's so much easier now than it was even 10 years ago. Like, mm, I can right. video chat with my husband every single day and get to see him and talk to him and hear how his day is going. And instead of this kind of hectic time where, you know, when we're living together in the spring, he has to go to work and you see each other in the morning and then after work. But when I'm on the road, it's kind of an interesting thing that we've built in our relationship because we have a very dedicated like 20 to 30 minutes where I'm not doing anything else. I'm not multitasking. Mm -hmm. All my focus is on him. How are you doing? How's your day? What interesting things happened? You know, let's talk about what's going on in the world. And it's actually really interesting because how often in your day do you just devote 30 minutes um, to someone with no other distractions? Um, and it, and that's really special. So I think we found all of the positives um, mm -hmm. in having that relationship that needs to be long distance over those four and a half months in the winter. Yeah, no. And, and you recently got married, which, you know, taking this to the next level now, I think a lot of people do schedule weddings and celebrations after their seasons. Um, but congratulations on that. And, you know, it seems like you've created a really good balance for yourself. Has your husband, um, experienced much time in the, on the race circuit with you being able to see this world with the reindeers and, uh, <laughs> the, at least it's Europe in Christmas, right? At least they're celebrating oh, not in the country that wouldn't celebrate. Yeah. Um, it's actually funny. So he is my husband, Wade, he's from Winnipeg. He grew up a hockey player and came to the States to play hockey. So he understands and has a deep love and respect for the world of elite athletics. However, mm. when I met him, he didn't know anything about cross country skiing. And I wow. love that. I mean, he doesn't even have, he doesn't have an Instagram. He deleted his Amazing. Facebook. Like he's my balance. How would you meet? <laughs> Just find each other. <laughs> oh man, it's a really adorable story. We were at the um, we we're at the wedding of a really good friend of mine. Um, she's a Canadian cross country skier, Chandra Crawford, mm. and she married his cousin. And at their wedding, it you know when people do the little clink 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 on the glass to make the couple yeah. during the reception. Well, instead of that, they had this giant Jenga set. Um, with oh my gosh. Two by fours, you know, like this giant block set. Oh my gosh. Set. And they said, all right, here's the rules. 
if you want to make the happy couple kiss, go up with a partner, you each stack a block, and if you do so successfully, they will kiss, and if you knock it over, you have to kiss your partner. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, you can see where this is going. <laughs> and so the, later in the night, we were all dancing. Well, there was some alcohol involved. We all forgot about the blocks. And this super cute guy comes up and is like, hey, do you want to, like, stack some Jenga blocks? And I looked over there, and that stack was solid. Like, there was no risk whatsoever. And I was mm-hmm. like, sure. So I go over there, and I stack my block. And right as Wade is placing his block – my teammate, um, Holly Brooks, her husband saw this happening and just goes, yes. And he kicked the table and the whole thing came clattering down. The oh my God. dance floor stopped. You know, everyone's going, Ooh, you know. And so Ooh, he had no choice but to grab me and kiss me in front of his entire extended family because it was his cousin who married my friend. Wow. So that's how we met. <laughs> That is a phenomenal story, and I just don't think they make those stories anymore. It's that's true. iconic. It's a real Nicholas Sparks novel. It's real cheesy, but um, yeah, it's we uh, we hit it off really well. And I loved that he didn't know anything about my sport at all, mm-hmm. but yeah. he quickly grew to learn about it and to get really invested. Like, oh, I love following the races. I love learning about it. And um, He's up at all hours of the night trying to oh, figure yeah. out what time you're racing. I remember oh, trying yeah. to watch the Olympics, and I was like, first of all, there's like a race. There's like two a day based on which time zone I'm awake for on the West Coast. So I couldn't even keep track of the time. So I can only imagine the European, I guess Europe, Europe to the East Coast isn't as bad. It's it's a little more friendly, for sure. Um, he usually wakes up at like 4 or 5 in the morning, and then we'll go back to bed after the race. And um, it's funny because I've always told him, you don't have to watch. Like, I'd rather you get a full night's sleep. He's like, oh, no, I'm watching. <laughs> so I'll tell his, you no. It's his choice. But, um, yeah, I got to teach him how to ski, and so he'll usually come over for um, as long as he can with around work, but he'll come over. Um, this year after the tour to ski. So I have a little 10 day break um, where I'm still training, but it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty relaxed because I'm recovering from a huge output. Um, and so he'll come skiing with me and enjoy some apres skiing drinks and it'll be really Ooh. fun. I'd love to learn a little about how U.S. Nordic skiing has advanced within your career. Um, I think the first time I became aware of you, obviously, was when you won your Olympic medal in the relay and obviously the incredible announcer, here comes Diggins coming down. Um, But within the past, you know, I guess it was five years because of COVID, that, you know, you guys have really leveled up as being competitive with the Europeans. Um, That's my very nascent understanding of how the Americans are competing within this circuit. So if you could explain that a little bit more of how you guys are now inserting yourself into this tour and making some waves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is kind of cool to see when you look back at the progression of our sport, because we've always had standout moments in history, right? Like in the seventies, Bill Cope got a silver medal. Um, we had Allison Owen Spencer, get some podiums way back in the day. So we've, we've definitely had some real standout stars and I, so I don't want to like walk all over them. Oh, Um, no, no. But, um, but the depth, 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 consistency, and the amount of people, 
um, racing at a very, very high level on the world stage. It's been really cool. And so I'm not exactly sure how it is in running or in the Diamond League and track, but for us in cross-country skiing, we have the World Cup circuit, and that's what Mm -hmm. we're racing every weekend. And it used to be that the top 30 in the world scored points. So it was 100 for first, one point for 30th. It was a steep curve down. And it was, you know, we were really focused on, like, I got to crack the top 30. You know, like, Mm -hmm. this is amazing. Like, if I can crack the top 30, that's huge. And that was back in, like, 2010 to 2012. Like, when I first started, I was like, oh, man, like, my life is going to be made if I get 29. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But now it's – we have – so many women and men cracking the top 30 and cracking mm. top 10 and now on the podium. And then we have regular podium athletes. And it's so cool to see that depth. And I think a lot of it comes from uh, we've learned so much about how to train. Um, sports science has come so far in the last mm-hmm. three years. It's amazing. But also our resources have gotten so much better. So for us, the the wax under our skis is so important. I have to imagine it's sort of the equivalent of your running shoe. You know, if you've got a shoe. I don't, (laughs) yeah, I guess kind of, but I don't think it's like the wax is very temperature dependent. It's like you either have a good shoe or you don't. And most of the time your shoe is dependent on your sponsor. So you don't actually have that very many options versus you guys. Like if you mess up your wax, I heard it's this game over, right? Oh, I mean, you know, if, if you took me in my body on the same day, same course, and gave me two different pairs of skis and had me run the same course. And the skis were waxed super differently. And then on top of the wax, you have structure. So like the actual, like they put structure into the ski because if it's wet snow and it's melting, um, you can kind of almost feel like you're suction cups to the snow a little bit. I mean, it could be a minute oh. difference. Oh my gosh, place. that's crazy. That's kind of the difference between like the carbon plate shoes that they have now and a regular shoe. Right. But now, but now everyone kind of has access. Um, but that's wild. Like that's a lot to think about. But you don't do that yourself. No, I don't. So it, it'd be kind of like I guess the closest analogy would be if someone else picks your shoe for you, um, mm. and, or like, you the wrong liner, so you know it'll fit you. But it's gonna the thing around your liner, the actual mm-hmm. shoe part. You don't know if you're gonna get a carbon plate or not. You don't know oh, wow. who you're racing against have carbon plates or not. It's, like that. it's a little bit of a toss up and you're about, you're going to find out like one K into the race, <laughs> how, how it goes. And so it's really interesting. It's a little bit of a mental game too, because you work with your wax technician and mm-hmm. every time I race, we, um, my wax tech, Jason Cork, he's also my coach. He's amazing. He works oh, wow. so hard. Our whole team. Like, that sounds like a lot of jobs. It's a lot of jobs. We have about eight wax techs full-time on the World Cup circuit waxing for our team. And so they're out there hours before the race starts, like three hours before the start. They're out there testing every combination of wax and not just the combination. How do we apply it? Do we brush it? Do we iron it? Like, what do we do? And so it's, it's amazing. It's wow. like art and science mixed together. And then on top of that, my tech prepares six of my skis that, you know, because every pair of ski is different, kind of like shoes. And he's like, all right, here's our six, you know, what we think are our best bets. And so I show up an hour, 15 minutes before the race and we start testing the skis and we narrow it down to the best pair. And then he runs them back to the truck with 30 minutes before the start. He has a very high stress job and he yes. has to completely rewax them with whatever combination of wax the team has come up with. And then he runs them to the start while I'm completing my warm up. 
And so I have full trust in him. And honestly, our wax team is amazing. And so in this analogy, usually they're nailing the carbon plate, if you know what I mean. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they. This is really intense. It's super intense. There's so many variables. So anytime you watch cross country skiing, like if you go back and you watch those Olympics, every single athlete's on a different pair of skis with a different kind of wax on them. And so you don't even know, but you can kind of tell when you look at the downhill, like who's got an edge and who's having to work a little harder. It's sometimes masked though by the fact that some people are more aerodynamic in their tuck or have better form Mm. than others. So you really never know. And so it's kind of an interesting sport because you know, sometimes I get really jealous of runners because you can kind of measure like, all right, when I'm in good form, I can mm-hmm. run a mile repeat at this pace. You know, I kind of know. I have a metric. Yeah. I kind of figured this out. I, I know where I stand. And with us, it's like you have no clue. <laughs> you just don't know. There's so many variables between the wax, the skis, the snow conditions, the course, which is always changing country to country and venue to venue, and then wow. your mindset and technique. So it's always interesting though, you know, like you're never bored. You never feel like you have it all figured out. You're always trying to learn and improve. And in that way, I think it's, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I want there to be like a documentary on your wax tech this season, just following <laughs> their job. Obviously you can be in it too, but more of this back and forth of, you know, kind of F1 style of the behind the scenes of changing the tires, all those people. I think that's like a really the underlayer that needs to be told a little bit more. You know, I've always wished they would show more of that because it's so amazing. Once you start getting into the sport, I wish they would show the crazy amount of work from the amount of people that goes into each and every race. Because yeah, it it makes it so cool once you understand what's going on behind the curtain. So this season, what is your goal on the circuit? And is there a major championship? Yeah. So, um, so like I mentioned, we're racing the normal world cup circuit from November to March, but in the very end of February into the first week of March, we have world championships. They're in Planisa, Slovenia, um, which is a beautiful, oh my gosh, surrounded by mountains. It's gorgeous. Um, the last time I raced there, it was really sunny. It was, it was awesome. So, um, that's, uh, being a world championships, obviously that's kind of the highlight of the season. Everyone's kind of focused on that. Um, but outside of that, I would really like to go after the overall again. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really know how this translates to the running world, but for us, the crystal globe is basically mm-hmm. who scores the most points over the entire season. So mm, every okay. race, every style, sprint distance, classic skate, Who's the best in the entire world at the sport this year? And I was able to bring home the globe two years ago. Um, But I would love to do it again. Um, That would be... That would be really cool. To me, that's kind of the, the ultimate goal. So it takes stamina and planning over an entire season. Um, mm. But I think it's it's one of those reach goals where you're like, if everything lines up, we have a shot at making this happen. So that's what makes it oh. exciting to go for. Well, we'll be cheering for you. I think in the running world, you do collect po- points, like Diamond League points, but you need enough points to get into the final. And then whoever wins that final race is the Diamond League champion. So I don't think it's actually quite the same because um, you're racing a lot more of the world. So it's kind of a harder circuit to navigate because if you're in the season's super long. So if you're racing in Beijing in April and then all the way in Europe in the spring, it's, you know, there can be some people that come in really hot, but there's, 
that's it's just far too complicated. I think I like your system better. <laughs> well, I like it too because you have the world championships. So this day, this race, mm-hmm. right now, who's the best in the world? Yeah. But then you I like have that. the overall. So over the course of this year, who can prove themselves time and time again to consistently be the best? So I love that you have both. It's kind of mm-hmm. cool. It's cool to try to try to go after it all and kind of see where people's priorities lie. So the big O, the Olympics, how does that compare to the other competitions? I know in uh, alpine skiing, for example, the Olympics are, you know, it's great, but the World Cup is, you know, a more elite competition because there could be 10 Norwegians who are the top 10 in the world. And I was wondering if it was similar in Nordic skiing where the Olympics are an incredible experience, but they're not the highest level of competition. How do you um, factor in the Olympics in your training cycles? Is it the pinnacle for you or is it just, you know, that's the peak competition for the year? That's such a great question because it's absolutely true. You know, at the Olympics, you can only start four people, um, at least for cross-country skiing. You can start four Mm -hmm. people per country. And so some countries have someone who's like, you know, I could probably be the fifth best in the world, but mm-hmm. I'm the fifth on my team for my country, so I don't get a start. You know, I mean, we run into this with USA swimming all the time. You know, you mm-hmm. might be able to win and you don't even get to start. Like, it's incredibly competitive. It's so hard. So um, I think it is interesting because in that respect, both the world championships and the Olympics truly, you know, on any given race may not be as competitive as a World Cup where a country may be able to start up to eight, depending on how they've done. So you have mm-hmm. a deeper field. And so in that sense, winning um, any random World Cup may actually mean more. But mm-hmm. when you factor in the fact that I'm from the U.S., and in the U.S., the Olympics is everything, right? I mean, like, yeah, we, it's, it's crazy. Like, people literally, I've had people be like, so what do you do in the four years between Olympics? I'm like, oh, you know, I sit around on the couch and eat candy, you know, like, I mean. I just it, chill, get nice and out of shape. Yeah, exactly. I just chill. No, I mean, like, it's it's really amazing. Like, it really is Olympics or bust um, a lot mm-hmm. of the time in the U.S. So, and and that's the thing that will change your life. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I won um, in a relay with Keegan in the team sprint in 2013. We won the first ever um, world championship gold medal for men or women for our country. And it was a blip on the radar. Like it didn't change our lives. It didn't change the trajectory of our careers. Um, People were still like, wait, so you won Minnesota State High School, right? Like people didn't know. Um, And and that's why I I do not expect people to know. But Mm -hmm. just to compare, like it's really interesting because years later, um, Mm -hmm. we win that same race against many of the same exact athletes at the Olympics and it changes our lives forever. Right. Wow. And it catapults the sport and we are able to get better funding for the sport, more resources. It helps the whole next generation. It's huge. Um, suddenly mm-hmm. I have a better platform. I can talk about climate change and body image and mental health and reach more people. It's awesome. Just because it was the Olympics. And so mm-hmm. in that respect, I guess I would be crazy to not try to periodize my training to really try to hit the Olympics hard because, you know, if you're from the U.S. especially, that's the one that's really going to reach people, inspire people, 
and mm-hmm. change your sport trajectory. So um, we definitely do a four-year periodization um, in my training. Where is the next Winter Olympics? I think I know, but I just don't want to mess it up. It's in Cortina, right? Yes, Milan Cortina, which, oh, it's amazing. I'm so pumped because um, I think they do this at a lot of Olympics where they kind of make different hubs for the different mm-hmm. sports. And they're going to use an existing venue that we race at every single year. We're going to race in Val de Fiume in Italy, which is so cool. They don't have to build a new venue. That's they don't amazing. have to create infrastructure. They're going to use something that's already there, that's already doing a good job. You know, from a sustainability perspective, I love uh-huh. that. We love to see it. But also, racing somewhere that normally gets snow, amazing. Like, I'm so excited. We love the courses there. So um, we're all pretty pumped up for the next Olympics. So this is my last Olympic question for you, but it's kind of a longer one. Um, I would love to get a... Uh, a recap of how this year's games went and how, you know, meddling felt. I feel like the meddling first time is an incredible experience. You know, you're doing it with a teammate in a relay, but to come back with all the pressures that come from being a returning medalist, a team leader, um, what was that experience like um, being in it was Beijing, correct? Yes, Beijing. Yeah. I'm um, confused because we had Beijing and Tokyo in the same year. So I wanted to make sure we had Beijing 2020, 2022. Yeah, I, we really back-to-backed all the excitement. It was it was amazing. But, um, yeah, it, honestly, it was really challenging. And mm-hmm. I knew it would be. Um, and it was, it was just kind of funny because my first Olympics was in 2014 in Sochi, Russia. And I kind of came in um, – not as a nobody, I was, I was a world champion, but I didn't have expectations, right? Like, mm-hmm. I was not one of the faces of Team USA. I got to slide onto the radar and be like, you know what? This In this sport, you play the long game, you know? Like, you don't peak till your late 20s, early 30s. Like, I'm here to learn mm-hmm. and gain experience. And if, if I have amazing races, great. If I don't, nobody cares. I have no criticism. Like, it's great. You know, I was, I was like 20 two years old. And so, oh, that, so fun. it was a great experience and um, I had a lot of fun. And then my next Olympics was the one where Keegan and I won. And mm-hmm. I remember again, though, coming into the Olympics, there was some pressure, you know, when are you guys finally going to medal? Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, there was mm-hmm. a lot of pressure, but I didn't feel it acutely. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't all on my shoulders. It didn't I guess I would say people were watching, but it was different this time around. And I knew right after we got that medal, I was like, oh man, the next Olympics is going to be hard. And so I wow. started. You knew working. right away. Oh, I knew right away. I was like, you don't come back as a returning medalist and get to, you don't get to be under the radar anymore. Like, oh yeah. You got to do all the PR, all of it that you probably realize, didn't realize at the time, like how many responsibilities you were going to have, like the previews. That part of it's insane. Because they probably do those a year in advance, don't they? Oh, yeah. Well, it was actually pretty great because we had NBC Common Film for three days, literally 14 months before the Olympics. We were like, let's just knock this one out early. And they were like, great. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, mean, the run-up to the Olympics starts a year and a half out. Um, You're already being asked all these questions about it. So from a mental, emotional well-being standpoint, you're like, all right. I know the pressure's mm-hmm. on. And to cap it off, I was coming into that year as the defending overall World Cup champion. 
So I was coming into it. No pressure. And being the best in the world. That's hard. Um, And so I worked really closely with my sports psychologist. She's amazing. Um, She's worked with me since I was 19. Oh, wow. Everything. (laughs) Everything. All my deepest, darkest secrets. But also the ones that I'm very public and open about. So I, I struggled with an eating disorder when I was 18, 19 years old. And I was really cognizant of the fact that all this pressure might make mm-hmm. some of those demons come back up. So we checked in all the time. I mean, we checked in almost every day during the Olympics. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely before every single race, um, we checked in every week that whole year, even in the summer. Um, and we really talked about different strategies for trying to compartmentalize what was going on, um, how to make sure my goals were just process focused. I talked Mm -hmm. really closely with all our coaches. Like we're not going to talk about medals, you know, pressure doesn't come from inside the house. There's a lot of pressure outside, but within this team, it's a really safe space where we're just focusing on how do we become the best that we can be on any given day? It's not Mm. like, how do we win the gold medal? It's, you know, how do we make sure we're getting good sleep? How do we adjust to the jet lag after travel? How do we make sure, you know, do you have all the um, nutrition products that you need with you? Can we fly them over? Um, Mm -hmm. Really focused in on all those little process pieces to try to put together an environment where I could perform. But I think it was so key that we didn't talk about the outcome of performing because mm-hmm. I think that would have really made me crack. And as it was, the the month before the Olympics, to be totally honest, it was really hard. I cried mm. a lot. I mean, I, it was like I had a lot of pressure on me. I was coming in as one of the faces of the games. I was on multiple magazines, which is just not something that mm-hmm. high school Jesse would have imagined or known how to deal with. Um, and so... And then there was some like social media trolling and bullying going on. And so it was just like, Oh my gosh, really? Oh yeah. Like it was just a lot coming at me at once. And so I really leaned on Wade. Um, Mm -hmm. I really leaned on my sports psych, on my coaches, on my teammates to just create this really safe bubble where I could be myself with people who supported me, whether I was first or last, you know? And I think that really saved me. So um, coming in, that was some of the hardest pressure I've ever been under however in a way I'm, I'm really grateful because I'm like man if I can get through that like <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. happens the rest of my career bring it on like that was a crazy experience because on top of that you have the COVID stress right and oh, so right if if not even you but if someone near you gets sick and your contact trace the last 10 years of your life, like you don't even get a chance to try to prove what you've been working So you were in serious isolation, which is great for mental health, as we know. Oh, yes. Just kidding. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were, and, um, we were in a really tight bubble. I mean, we were really strict about it because we were like, we just can't afford to risk this. Like none of mm-hmm. us feel like we want to risk everything we've been working towards for the last decade. So um, we decided to go all in on it and be super safe and super careful. And I'm very glad we did um because then you just don't have the what ifs you know Mm -hmm. Um, you never have to look back and be like what if we had just decided (laughs) to Mm -hmm. wear our mask more often or whatever so um that part really really helped 
but I pro- I'm probably forgetting the other half of your question, but. Oh, no. Well, as far as, uh, the other question was more performance-based of how you executed the Olympics, but are you the kind of team that, like, will skip the opening ceremonies, stay super, I guess, did they even have, they had them, they had opening ceremonies. We did, but, but it was a crazy travel, so we did end up skipping them. I went to the mm-hmm. last two, um, the last two mm-hmm. Olympics I did, and it was kind of a controversial thing to go because I was racing the next day. But um, oh. I'm, in case you can't tell, I'm a true extrovert. And I, you're really, like, I gotta go. I, I would, I would, for all the people that skip it, I'm like, man, you might not get another shot. But you've already been twice. So if, you, if this is your fourth one, you maybe it's the one that you were like, I'm going back. I'm not skipping it this time. One more. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. Like the energy is electric. You know, the stadium just mm-hmm. comes alive. It, like the sound of the It music. fills up your cup. Oh, it fills up my cup completely. My cup was overflowing. And so that kind of energy comes back out in my racing, right? Because when I'm, I've always thought, you know, happy athletes are fast athletes. So mm-hmm. when I'm really happy and things in my life are going well, everything's lining up, then I can really go into the pain cave. You know, I'm willing mm-hmm. to make myself suffer immensely during this endurance race because everything else in my life is going well and I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's it's just kind of that inverse relationship Whereas, like if you're in a lot of um, physical or emotional or mental pain, it's you're already in pain. You know, you only have mm-hmm. so much more you can give to the race. So um, it was hard to miss opening ceremonies but um, there were a lot of us doing that. So we got mm-hmm. all dressed up and we did our own march, which was really fun. We were going to do it with other countries, but then they stopped us because they said it might be a protest. Um, so we weren't, uh, we had to do it just <laughs> as our team. And there's so much, the IOC has a million, million rules. Mm-hmm. So you did six races at the games, came away with some medals, Highs, highlight of your competition at the Olympics this year, which is still this year, which is crazy. Like this wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a really long time ago. feels like a couple lifetimes ago, but I would say the highlight, um, my last race, the 30 kilometer skate was one of the craziest scenarios in my life because, um, and I would say it's the race. It might be the most proud of a race I've ever been in my entire life because 30 hours before the start, I got food poisoning. Uh, from the dining hall, which was a real bummer. Shouldn't have gone for the dumplings. Won't do it again. Um, Wait, but you know what? The dumplings are, yeah, I would think they were safe too. I thought they were, (laughs) but, um, and early on we had a, um, we had someone go around with a thermometer to every single tray testing the food temperature. And like, I mean, we were pretty paranoid, but anyway, um, it didn't work out. And I got food poisoning. And so the day before the race, instead of going and testing my skis, which as we've talked about is mm-hmm. pretty important. Essential. Um, I was in bed. I I went for like a 20-minute jog and I felt like the wind was going to knock me down. Like I felt like I was going to float away. I was like, oh, no, this is not how I envisioned feeling mm-hmm. the day before one of the most important races of my life. And honestly, I called my parents and broke down crying and um and my mom had to remind me like don't decide right now how you're gonna feel like you don't Mm -hmm. know it might turn around you might be able to refuel and rehydrate yourself and you just don't have to make the decision right now and also 
if you don't want to raise down, like you don't owe this to anyone, you've already brought back the medal for your country in the program. Like you don't owe mm-hmm. anyone anything. If you want to do this, do it because you love it and because you want mm-hmm. to just chase the feeling of an excellent race. Um, and that really helped <laughs> along with mm-hmm. talking obviously to my sports psych and my fiance. So I spent that whole day like trying to eat bananas and soup out of a can every couple hours. So sad. It was so sad. <laughs> I was pretty pitiful. Um, but I was starting to feel better by that night. In the morning of the race, I was like, all right, I'm just, let's take it one step at a time. You know, like if I end up crashing and burning later, whatever, I'm going to go try as hard as I can right now. And I ended up sticking with it. Um, I ended up skiing the last, I think, like 17K of the race alone. I started cramping for the last half of the race. Um, And my legs were like twitching to the point where I could barely move them. So my technique started looking worse and worse and worse. Honestly, it was the ugliest skiing of my life. It looked terrible. Um, But crossing that, and like when I crossed the finish line, I mean, I was running on willpower alone. Like I looked like a puppet with the strings cut. It was just like, oh, there's epic photos. That might have to be the cover art for this podcast. I won't do that to you, but pretty amazing photos. (laughs) Honestly, you should. I look rugged. And you know what? It's not always I like the celebration photos though, because getting your medal in the stadium, incredible. That was cool. So that, um, so obviously I recovered, (laughs) even though at the finish, I mean, I could not stand. I had to be carried out. I couldn't see, which was really scary. <gasps> Med um, tent immediately. Yeah, I it, it was bad. Um, but I got a lot of help, and I recovered. And um, But I will say, like, getting the medal um, alongside these other incredible athletes in the stadium at the finish, that was – I mean, that's going to stay with me forever. Like, I get goosebumps every time I think about it. And because of what it meant, too, for our team, because, mm-hmm. like we talked about with the wax and the skis, like, for our coaches and our tech team, they nailed it that day. And that was their medal, too, you know, and for them mm-hmm. to be able to watch and then hold the medal after. And that was so cool to share that with them. So I really felt like we came together as a team and got through a really tough time, like, mentally and physically. But – Um, it was amazing to think back on like what we could do when we were able to pull together. So that was really empowering. Yeah, it was definitely incredible to watch from so many miles away. And, uh, you mentioned mental, mental health a couple of times. And I think as, as athletes and as humans, you know, I think sometimes we forget that Olympians are human as well. So to see it all come together on one day, um, was truly incredible. And, you know, I know you mentioned your goal this year is to win, um, the world championships, be the overall winner as well. But, you know, you've, you've medaled the Olympics, you've been a world champion, you've won these circuits all over the place and getting the names wrong, but what is left for you to accomplish in this sport? And, you know, how, is there a pathway that you're thinking of, you know, I want my career to tell me when it's going to be done or I have a timeline that I'm thinking of, or I'm just going to keep doing this until they pull me off the course. (laughs) Um, Probably mostly the latter, but (laughs) until they kick me out. Um, But no, honestly, there's so many things 
that I, mm-hmm. I want to improve on because, you know, in our sport, we have skating, classic, we have sprint, um, long distance and middle distance. So there's so many uh, things to improve on. So it makes me really excited, honestly, because I don't think I've totally reached my potential yet. And I want to see what that is and what that feels like and what that looks like. So I'm always working so hard on technique. Um, my greatest strength has always been the mental side. My technique is a little rugged, you know, like I, and I am working really hard on it, but, uh, anyone who watches me ski, they're like, Ooh, yeah. Okay. She, this is where, uh, this is the low hanging fruit for her to improve. Mm. So, um, I've been putting in so much work. Like we just went to Australia for three weeks to be on snow because, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, roller skiing is really good for training. However, it's just not the same. Like it's just mm-hmm. not the same as that feeling on snow of compressing your kick pocket and feeling the wax connect with the snow and figuring out, you know, what subtle shift in my weight or my body, you know, do I need to lean forward onto the balls of my toes or lean back a little? Like what can I do to make this better and more efficient? Um, mm-hmm. got to be on snow to improve that. Mm-hmm. So after two years of not being able to go down under, um, with, COVID, we were finally able to go and get on snow for a three-week chunk, which is awesome. So I'm really excited to see kind of where I can improve with my technique. You must have some serious frequent flyer miles if this is the this is the circuit. <laughs> you are diamond status all the way. Shockingly not, because once we get to Europe, we mostly drive. Um, oh, one bummer. To the next. There are some flights. It depends on the schedule of the year, but I know I'm like, darn. <laughs> Well, Team USA is Delta, so they should just hook it up anyways. Hope you're listening, Delta. Oh, yeah, they definitely listen to this podcast. <laughs> All right, we're going to switch gears off of you know competing and training for a little bit to talk about some of the other aspects that you're involved with outside of sport obviously it's all connected but you mentioned um you know your experience with an eating disorder and i think that's something that's highly prevalent in you know most endurance sports and sports in general um for women as well and you've been an advocate for and sponsored by the emily program um for many years and been super open about you know discussing these topics i think that one you know eating disorders are talked about a lot, but one thing you said that stuck with me is that you do know that there are some life triggers and um, that you have to be aware of them as well. And it's something that, you know, eating disorders don't fully go away and they're always with you a little bit. So I'd love to hear your, um, you know, how you manage knowing that this is something you've experienced in the past and how you speak to it externally now. And, um, you know, I'm not an expert in this category. I'm not a professional or a doctor. So I normally just avoid those topics because I don't feel super comfortable speaking to them. And, um, it's great to say like food is fuel and all these things, but, um, without that certain lived experience, I think it's really challenging. So that was a very long winded question, but more of how, um, do you think about what you share about um, eating disorders on your social media, knowing that it is such a challenging topic? Right. Well, I I love that. And for the record, I don't have any qualifications either. <laughs> That's no, no, no. But like lived experience and like working with your sponsor, I think that that is definitely extremely valid. Right. I'm. Yeah. I basically say like I'm not a professional. So it, when people, you know, come, um, whether it's an Instagram DM or they come anonymously and they write and they say, you know, I'm struggling with this. I always say like, 
I recommend that you work with a professional, you know, like mm -hmm. I am not qualified for that. Um, where I do feel like I can help is helping people have compassion and understanding mm -hmm. around it because it is part of my lived experience. Right. And, and helping people understand, like you said, it's a lifelong thing. So, you know, if I was an alcoholic, I would say I'm sober, right? It's mm -hmm. not like, Oh, I, I don't ever, you know, it's, you, you have to work to maintain a healthy balance for yourself. And so in that way, I would say I'm in recovery, right? Like I mm -hmm. acutely had an eating disorder, but I'm going to be in recovery my whole life. You know, like I always have to be my own best cheerleader, cheering for my health and my mental well-being, and making sure that mm -hmm. I'm ready to reach out for help uh, if and when I ever need it, which those times have arisen. Like we talked mm -hmm. about going into the Olympics, super high stress, pressure cooker environment, like I need to get on top of this and make sure that I have people looking out for me to help me not self-destruct for lack of a mm -hmm. better term. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I ended up writing a book um, because I wanted people to be able to talk about it. Like I want it to mm -hmm. be less of a taboo subject. I want coaches to have a little bit of understanding like, oh gosh, here's what it might feel like inside the brain of someone struggling mm -hmm. from an eating disorder to learn that. Oftentimes, it's not about food at all. It's about a feeling of needing control over something in your life. It's about, um, you know, the eating disorder itself might be a coping mechanism for stress mm -hmm. or pressure or anxiety or something going on in your life. And so really, you know, the whole slap a Band-Aid solution of like, here, just eat the hamburger. Like, that's mm -hmm. not really getting to the root of the problem, which is why we need the professional help and the therapy to help figure out, you know, what's going on because one of the hallmarks of eating disorders is that they don't make sense. They're not logical, mm -hmm. right? Like I knew when I was 18, like, uh, and I had bulimia, I knew like, this is not good for my skiing career. I'm not feeling mm -hmm. my body properly. You know, I've had talks from sport dietitians. I know what I should be doing and I know I'm not doing that. And I know this doesn't make sense, but I, I couldn't stop. Like I felt completely mm -hmm. out of control, ironically, because I was trying to seek control from my eating disorder. So um, I think, you know, if I want people to understand anything, it's that they, they are illogical. They don't make sense. Mm -hmm. And that can make it sometimes hard to find compassion and understanding if you have someone in your life who is struggling. And I think that's where a lot of the shame and guilt and secrecy comes in because when you have an eating disorder – you might assume no one's going to understand this. I don't even understand this. How could anyone else understand when I don't understand why I feel compelled that, to do this? Um, but I think we have to remember that it's not your fault. You know, mm -hmm. just like um, if you are colorblind, it's not a choice. That's how you were born. That's part mm -hmm. of who you are. In eating disorder, it's genetically programmed. And, you know, the analogy that I learned at the Emily program that makes a lot of sense to me is um, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So mm. genetically, you may be kind of hardwired to be someone, maybe you're super type A, you're in an endurance sport, you're in a high pressure environment. You know, these things, like you might be hardwired to be more susceptible to an eating disorder. And then on top of that, maybe you have a coach who starts saying things like, you know, if you lost weight, you'd win that race, which mm -hmm. is really frustrating. And that's what I'm a big part of what I do is try to educate coaches on, Hey, can we figure out a, a healthy way to empower our athletes to be their best? Well, 
having quality of life, um, mm-hmm. protecting them as humans and not just seeing them as results machines. So I think remembering if you are someone who's struggling, like, um, it's not your fault. There is no such thing as sick enough. And I'm using air quotes because <laughs> I forget yeah. that I'm on yeah. the podcast. But, um, I think a lot of people are like, I'm not sick enough to receive help. But we know that the sooner you start to receive help, the greater your chances of making a full recovery and a faster recovery. Now that said, everyone recovers on their own timeline. Everyone's timeline is different. So it's not like, oh, you know what? It's going to take you two weeks. Like you can't just Mm -hmm. give somebody um, a sort of timeline like that. But we do know that the sooner you you start to seek help and start to get into recovery, um, the better and stronger your chances are. So I just want people to know, like, it's not like, oh, you don't have to reach a threshold of now I'm sick enough to receive help. Yeah. You are worthy of help. Um, and it isn't your fault. So sorry, that was a really long way. No, no. I think it's an extremely, extremely important topic. And, uh, you know, for you to be so articulate, articulate about something that is extremely challenging, obviously, you know, that is personal growth that you've gone through and to be an advocate and a resource for a lot of people to race with the Emily program. So, you know, aware on your, you know, your forehead, it's, um, I think it's a really cool step that you're taking and a path that you're carving for, uh, you know, men and women in sport, um, to be open to having these discussions and kind of lift the veil of secrecy. So I just want to say thank you. And I've always appreciated the way that you've, um, communicated that. Thanks. That means a lot because I think, you know, like you said, a lot of people assume Olympic athletes aren't human. I am so human. I am so flawed. And I literally wear my past on my forehead every time I race. So I love it. It's a good reminder that like you do not have to be perfect to achieve your goals and to be happy and to be healthy. Like um, you just have to be willing to accept help when you need it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Jesse, I really could speak to you forever. An hour has already thoroughly skipped by, but the last topic we're going to discuss is kind of um, twofold. One part is the outdoors, and then the last bit is trail running, of course, to bring ourselves full circle. Um, you compete in a sport that is extremely reliant on snow, reliant on the environment. Um, you know, climate change is upon us. There's, you know, the planet is warming. There's less snow. And I know that there, um, you do speak on this topic as well. So I'd love to hear your perspective on, um, being a sustainability advocate as well. Yes. Um, yeah, this really passionate about this. And yesterday was national voter registration day. So, um, make sure you're ready for the midterms, everybody, because honestly, this, I I, want to think the single biggest thing you can do to impact our future and how we go about fixing climate change is vote because we need big policy changes. And that starts on the local level too. Like don't skip the local, like, you know, get yourself a glass of wine, do a little Googling of the candidates, make it fun. Um, but, but please, please, please vote because I think we need to combine big policy changes with personal accountability. And what I mean by that is a lot of people like to try to put it only on personal accountability. And that's, you know, they say, oh, you fly. So you can't advocate for climate change because you're a hypocrite. The thing is, 
I don't know anyone who just lives out of a yurt eating potatoes that they grew and are completely off the grid. Like, nobody's actually like mm. that. You know, we have to travel for weddings, for funerals, for work. Um, we're all plugged into this life. And so I'd like to envision a future where, through policy changes, we use our technology to make sure that we are able to travel in a carbon-neutral, in an Earth-friendly way. And so I think this idea that you can be an imperfect advocate, that's okay. You're allowed to care and to speak about climate, and um, you can and should use your voice to vote for the things that you want. Um, and you are allowed to be flawed and working towards getting better. So. Um, some of the things I think about are, um, obviously, if you can bike or walk, do that. If you can carpool, do that. You know, I love the little um, reusable silicone bags. Mm -hmm. Companies make these now. Like, I have They're uh, so good. reusable silicone muffin cups, which keep them very moist. Usually, I hate the word moist, but in muffins, okay. <laughs> Um, it's okay with the muffin. Yeah, it's okay with the muffin. So, like, there's all these different ways that you can be um, – more sustainable in your daily life. But I like to combine it with that that action of, you know, call your representative, let them know that, hey, I'm a trail runner. I really want clean air to breathe. <laughs> and I'm really concerned. I'm I want to see you vote this way on climate when you get the chance. Because I've traveled with Protect Our Winners to the Capitol and done some lobbying on three separate separate occasions now. And it's really cool to see how effective that is. Because you think about it, we're all super busy, right? We all have this to-do list that's a mile long. And our senators and House representatives, they do too. But every time someone calls and says, hey, I really care about my grandkids having the option to build a snowman someday, that keeps pushing climate to the top of the list. You're bringing mm -hmm. it top of mind. And it does matter. You know, one of the things that they kept telling us this spring was, this works, like you're bringing it top of mind and you're, you're holding us accountable. You know, we're not in this office if people don't vote us in. So, um, it, it was a good reminder that, you know, sometimes we start to feel like unempowered and a little mm -hmm. hopeless, especially when it comes to something as big as climate change, but it's a marathon and not a sprint and everyone has a voice and we all, when we all use it, it does make a difference. It can tip the scale. So, um, so go vote, people. <laughs> that is an extremely good message. And, you know, living in California now, I think you feel a little bit more out here than on the East Coast, too. Um, we are both doing this trail half marathon, and fingers crossed there's no smoke from a wildfire, which is crazy to think about that. It's the thing you have to factor into your daily life. But I'm going to end the episode with um, Jesse's tips for me for my first trail race. Um, this episode is brought to you guys by Solomon, which I spoke about in the, the very beginning, but it's been really fun working with Solomon. They are putting so much effort and um, care towards the women's side of sport. This race that um, we did has on-site childcare, which is super cool, and lactation stations, and it's really just moving the sport forward. So um, it's my first trail half marathon. I've, I've decided I'm going to run with a vest. I used to never run with any nutrition or anything like that, which is actually so bananas that no one in running runs with water or snacks. Um, I'm trying to change that because once I start running with a vest, I can't go back. But um, let's end it here, Jesse. Solomon Women's Trail Half 
what are your tips for me? And uh, I'll come back and do a little a little recap after this episode, um, post facto, when you're not on here to see if I listened. Okay. Uh, I feel like I'm vastly unqualified to give you tips on anything related to running. Um, oh, no, but it, it's <laughs> the trails. I mean, I also had Courtney. The first episode was with Courtney Dahlwater. Um, okay, so she gave go. me her. But she's, like, so extreme. This is a short race for her. She runs, like, 200 mile races. <laughs> so I think uh, how to keep your footing, like, the downhills. Like, there's a lot of things I don't know. Okay. Um, I guess, gosh, my tips, uh, well, I guess one of the big things, which I guess doesn't really matter if it's trail or anything, but test everything before you go. And so like, for example, I love the ultra glide shoes and the Pulsar trail series. I love those, but make sure that you break them in and test them and make sure it works for you on that kind of terrain. Um, because you may want something with bigger lugs, like you might want the speed cross. So, um, testing like which trail shoe is your perfect match. Um, that I would recommend to anyone, <laughs> but also in terms of like test your clothes, like make sure it doesn't chafe. Like it's mm, a longer race. A You're going to be out there for a while. And especially with a vest on top. Um, I, you know, the first time I started running wearing a vest, but I got hot and took my shirt off and I wasn't used to the way it would rub when I was only oh. wearing a sports bra. So I would say like Salmon makes some incredible, so lightweight, um, shirts and tank tops. So do you wear a t-shirt? Can you wear a tank top under a vest? Yeah. <laughs> tank top or a t-shirt. Um, I love the t-shirts also cause then you're not worrying so much about the sun burning your shoulders mm-hmm. and heating you up while you're out there, but totally depends on the temperature of the day. Um, but I would just say like test out a couple different outfit options so that the day of you're like, all right, I have worn this shirt before. And I know mm-hmm. that if I'm running in it for an hour or however long it takes, um, this is going to feel good to me as I sweat and get sticky. Um, same with the nutrition, like the race day is not the time to suddenly try taking gels or, or sport beans or jelly beans Mm -hmm. or gummy worms or whatever in a race for the first time. So test it out in a hard workout. Um, Mm. I've got like three days left. So yeah, (laughs) today. (laughs) Um, all right. I will, we have one, we have hills this afternoon. So then there we go. Perfect. Because, um, I actually had a really cool meeting with our sport dietitian and we're talking about fueling for a 50 kilometer race. Um, Mm. you're out there for a while and she's like, you can actually train your gut to process more food during a race. So train yourself to be able to absorb if you work up to it, um, without the serious like cramping and GI distress that, Mm. I weirdly (laughs) like to run with pretzel rods. It's a very strange one, but they have, they have, they don't break. Well, they kind of break, but they're like so sturdy and they have such good salt on them that, and they're very light on your stomach that it's kind of become my go-to and that's kind of weird. I love that though, because it's a quick absorbing carbohydrate that doesn't with the salt, but it doesn't take as much for your body to break that down versus like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what's a great, terrible example. Green beans. Like, you're just not going to oh. get a lot out of that. <laughs> Find the food that, like, works and makes sense and then try it. So, um, in terms of actual running technique, though, I have no idea what I'm doing. So, I'll be the one trailing right. out there. Maybe we'll just do it together. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll let the real trail pros go to the front because knowing me, I'll go out too fast and then be like, oh, we got 
more of this race last. I run the 5K and down, so um, really just getting into the longer distance category anyways. Oh, I'm just going to be fangirling Courtney the whole time. (laughs) Well, she sadly won't be there. No. But I know. But she did say on my the other episode coming out uh, later this, later that uh, she really wants to meet you. So we're gonna make that happen. And what we're all try- also trying to get happen is a um, she's gonna host her own race series, which will be like a carnival of races during a day. So we're that's what we're gonna be pitching and proposing. So I need your support there. Oh my god, sign me up! I'm 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 a huge fan, like huge fan. So um, that'd be really cool. <laughs> well. Thank you so much, Jesse, for coming on. This was really joyous and fun for me to learn more about uh, another sport. We're really trying to branch out here and be, you know, more than a lot of things. And I think your your honesty, your grit, your dedication, and just being such a good mentor for women in sport um, is extremely inspiring to me personally. And I wish you the best of luck this season and beyond. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on here. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Running. I can't believe it's been five seasons already, almost 50 episodes of the More Than Running podcast. You guys have been with me from professionally running on the track and now to this new stage of my life where I'm experimenting with running, my relationship with it, and I'm bringing you guys all along the way. I truly love this sport and my purpose in this podcast is to amplify voices that I find are extremely inspiring to me and I believe have great stories to share with you guys as well. If you ever have any recommendations of someone you'd love to hear on the podcast, you know where to find me. I'm over on Instagram and TikTok at Dana Geo or at the More Than Running podcast on Instagram. More Than Running is on the Sidious Mag podcast network and is edited and produced by Mike Zerzolo. If you like what you've heard, of course, leave a review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or just share with a friend. Until next time, cheers.